Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the fifth episode of Chatter on the Skull. And today, it's going to be all politics all the time, as promised in last week's episode. No big, long monologue or anything like that. It's an entirely election-themed episode this week, as there have been a ton of elections that I want to cover today. And we'll give an update on the big election, which is coming on the 8th. That is, of course, the midterm elections in the United States. And on that day, I will be hosting my first ever Chatter in the Skull live stream. It's going to be awesome. I love streaming election results. No matter really who wins or loses, it's a great time. I love just watching things come in and reacting in real time. It should be an absolute blast. It's going to be happening all night or hopefully as long as we can go until we have some definitive results as to what's going on. But without further ado, let us jump into the first election, which is an election we talked about on the very first episode of the show, which is, of course, the Brazilian election. So here we are overlooking Rio de Janeiro from the Christ Redeemer statue. I kind of like to put ourselves a little bit in the place of where we're talking about. In any case, we had the final results of the presidential election in Brazil. Of course, as we mentioned in the very first episode, they have a electoral system where a person has to secure 50 plus percent of the vote in order to become president of the country. And in the first round, the former president, Lula da Silva, was not able to achieve that threshold. So they had to have a runoff, which happened on the 30th of October. So let's bring up the results here from the second round of the presidential election, which of course narrows it down to the top two candidates from the first, which of course was De Silva and incumbent President Bolsonaro. And at the end of the day, this ended up being a lot closer than I personally thought it would, and I think a lot of people thought it would. I definitely saw a lot of celebration on the left as it was becoming clear that Lula was going to win. That being said, this was way closer than it should have been by any stretch of the imagination. Quite frankly, considering how well he did in the first round of the elections and how well he was doing in the polls, there's no way that this should have been as close as it was. That being said, it is a little bit closer when you look at the percentage-wise than in terms of the votes. He won pretty clearly in the popular vote by over 2 million votes, which is definitely a decisive victory in terms of numbers. Again, they don't have an electoral college system, even though the Brazilian system of government is loosely based on the American one. They don't have an electoral college for the presidential election. It's just a pure popular vote. So it's not like 100 votes in Florida are holding up the whole process and deciding who's going to be the president. It's not like we have to spend a month here like examining the hanging chads or anything like that. It's pretty decisive in terms of overall numbers who won. This is part of the reason why I thought it would have been very difficult for Bolsonaro to come out and say that this election was rigged or stolen in any way, which a lot of people were worried about because he had alluded to something like that in the past. So the worries weren't exactly unfounded. But when the election is decided by 2 million votes, it's a lot harder to find 2 million votes than it is to find a couple thousand votes in a handful of key states, essentially, to try and overturn an electoral college. And I do feel that if this had been closer, 
there is a high chance that Bolsonaro would have tried to pull some sort of shenanigans and contest the election in some way. That being said, at the time I'm talking to you now, those fears have by and large dispersed. And here we can see the electoral distribution of the votes, and it's definitely a divided country, and that is something that is clear from this election. Highly divided country. Brazil definitely facing a lot of issues in the future. And unfortunately, I don't think the job of Lula is going to be easy to try to run this country. As we mentioned before, the Chamber of Deputies is leaning towards the right wing significantly, and Lula is going to have his work cut out for him because there's definitely going to be some tension here in Brazilian politics as a left-wing president tries to get his agenda passed through a right-wing chamber of deputies. In any case, going back to the election, in the immediate aftermath, incumbent President Bolsonaro didn't speak for over 34 hours. This is from the Brazilian report. I like to try and get some local news sources when I talk about this kind of stuff. In any case, he didn't speak for over, 30, over 43 hours. And then he came out and he didn't explicitly concede, but basically said without saying that he's going to accept the results of the election. And then on the day I'm recording this, which is Wednesday, Bolsonaro came out and told the members of the Brazilian Supreme Court, essentially it's over, he's throwing in the towel. While he didn't say this publicly, it's enough to really indicate that there isn't going to be any funny business. And thankfully, there's going to be a peaceful transition of power in Brazil. And thankfully, we have managed to reduce one of these right-wing goons to just another single term. One of the results of Bolsonaro refusing to speak for essentially two days on the election was that it emboldened some of his supporters to block roads. They blocked over 200 roads in the days following the election result. They've managed to clear about 100 of them. However, there are still several that remain. And just as I'm recording this, essentially one hour ago, he came out and told protesters, it's over, essentially stop blocking the roads, we need to get back to business as usual. That being said, Brazil is a land of political comebacks, considering that Lula himself was the president previously, and then now has come back to serve a third term. So I wouldn't be surprised if we hadn't seen the last of Bolsonaro, it is definitely plausible he comes back in the future. And speaking of comebacks, what a great segue to our next election. I'm now here at the Israeli Knesset where a prime minister has made a comeback, in my opinion, unfortunately, and I'm going to tell you to you straight here, guys, definitely not a lot of hope in this election that we're going to talk about here for the left. This was definitely not a good day, not a good day, but it is what it is. And of course, Israeli politics are going to ripple heavily throughout the Middle East. So I think it's worth talking about them here today. This was not an election I was honestly really following. It snuck up on me until I ended up looking it up about a week ago. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, we are having the fifth election in four years here in Israel. So yes, Israeli politics is notoriously unstable. They do have periods of stability. And then they go through like these messy periods of instability. And obviously right now we're going through one of those messy periods of instability. However, given the results that we saw last night, it looks like that may change. So let's dig into some of these results here. What are we looking at? Basically, we're looking at a big time comeback for Benjamin Netanyahu. 
the politician who just won't go away. This guy has been in politics as long as I can remember, as long as I've been following politics, essentially. This guy has been a force, and he has been dominant in Israeli politics, and he's making a comeback. The incumbent prime minister, Yar Lapid, his party basically was not, or more like his coalition, because, again, Israeli politics is unstable and relies on a lot of coalitional politics to basically get anything done. So we are still getting the results in on this one. However, we're at 90% right now and it looks like things are going to be as they are. We have enough in terms of results to understand what is happening and probably who is going to form the next government. So moving down, we can see what the likely makeup of the next Knesset is going to be. You need 61 seats to eke out a majority in the system. And it looks like Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition will achieve 65 seats. Definitely enough for a majority. In fact, enough for a relatively stable majority. Because the last prime minister had only a majority of one seat. And it lasted him about a year before they had to have another election. Maybe we might actually have two years before we have an election in Israel. However, we shall see. So let's dig into these parties a little bit more. Israeli politics is very interesting. It is a very right-leaning country, though. They definitely have a lot more right-leaning parties than left-leaning parties. In fact, I would say that there's practically no good left-leading parties in Israel. Right now, the incumbent party that looks like is going to lose power, the Yesh Altid, sorry, people know that my terrible pronunciation has been a long-running joke, so my apologies. In any case, they're basically a very centrist party, not even really a left-leaning party, whereas Benjamin Netanyahu's party is a center-right party, and his coalition is backed by some extremely right-wing and extremely theocratic parties in the Israeli system, number one being here, the Shaz party. We can look at them, and they are an extremely religiously conservative party, and they make up one of the ultra-Orthodox elements of Israeli politics. And as you can see, they were able to gain two seats in the election. However, the biggest winner here is the Religious Zionist Party, another right-wing party who is going to be signing with Benjamin Netanyahu. So they won big last night. There is no question about that. The major losses, I would say, especially right here, are these two left-wing parties. It is really devastating to lose seat. They had one seat before, and this was like enough to essentially make them a kingmaker and make it for the first time that an Arab party had representation in the Israeli Knesset. Unfortunately, it definitely doesn't look like that is going to happen this time. Oretz is a, another left-wing party, which unfortunately lost all of their seats in this election. And yeah, as I said, not a lot of good news for the left in this election. Benjamin Netanyahu is a, like I said, he's definitely, he's a well-known, very well-known figure in politics. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like he's going anywhere anytime soon. Because as I said, he's got enough seats to secure a semi-stable election. Or sorry, a semi-stable coalition. But before I go, I want to share with you guys some of the hilarious small parties in Israel 
Unfortunately, none of these made the cut, but they have some phenomenal names. Anyway, so as we go down, we can see some of these wonderful parties. Of course, Israel has a pirate party. They are a well-known sort of small party. Next, we have me and you together. We have the Bible block. Definitely no question as to what they're about. Next, I like this, that the common alliance. What is the common alliance? Don't really know. Social leadership, just social leadership. Also us. But which one would you go with? Would you go with us or me and you? I'm not sure. It's a tough choice. After that, we have the fiery youth. That is a good name too. The free democratic Israel, of course, fine name. Next, we have the... <laughs> The 3040, no idea what the heck that's supposed to represent. I think it's like a tennis score or something. I'm not sure, but this one here is my personal favorite. There's a direction. Which direction? I don't know, one of them, but it, it's a direction at least. At least we're going somewhere. The rest of these aren't, aren't as good, but we do have some good ones here, like the or order of the hour and with strength for you. Just for you, nobody else. They don't have strength enough for themselves, but for you, they got it. In any case, just some of these, they, they cracked me up. And I really wanted to share them with you guys because they bring they brought me endless joy. Not much more to say about this election besides BB's back, baby. In any case, let's go in a direction. Now to a very unexpected direction. We are going to head to the country of Denmark. So here we are on the shores of Copenhagen next to the Little Mermaid statue because when I thought of Denmark, this was really all that I could think of. And here we are. I want to find a nice picture with a lot of people in the background so you could really get that touristy vibe. It can really give you the realistic experience of what it's probably like to actually go visit this statue. But in any case, Denmark had an election and I want to talk about it. Why? It's really not going to change a lot not that important sorry denmark but there are some funny things here that i want to share with you guys before we actually get into what i want to talk about let's go over the results of this election here the current prime minister and the leader of what they call the red block the social democrats and other left-leaning parties won another majority they were able to increase their majority by i believe it was two seats it might have only been by one seat either way they slightly increased their majority as you can see they gained two seats and their opponents them the danish liberal party the venstre sorry danes they got smoked here, losing a total of 20 seats. However, they did have a new Danish Democrat party come in here. I'm interested to see these guys. Oh, they're a right-wing populist party. Interesting. They may manage to make sizable gains. Looks like they're chewing into the centrist-leaning right parties, which is definitely a worrying sign for the future. That being said... Ultimately, the left-wing coalition did come out on top here. I think it's very interesting here that, of course, we have parties for the Faroe Islands and Greenland, which have representation in the Danish parliament. So the three big takeaways I want you guys to take from this election are, one, the Danish parliament is called the Folkenting, which is just an amazing name. Two, 
what is really interesting about this particular election, and we, we did just have it, so we're still kind of shaking things out a bit, is that Matej Fredriksson, the prime minister before the election, actually resigned even though her party gained seats. She stated that she was hoping to actually have a broader coalition moving forward, so she ended up resigning. Usually you don't resign when you gain seats. So any case, not really sure what's going to happen there. I don't know if she'll, if she's doing like this thing where she resigns and then everybody comes to her and is like, we really want you. We really want you to go. We really want you to be the prime minister. And she's like, okay, okay. If you guys really want me to, I don't know if that's what's actually happening here. It's just an interesting thing to note. Cause as I said, usually when your party gains seats, you don't end up resigning. Now, the last thing I want you to take from this election, why was the election called early? Because it was an early election. Let me tell you about the Mink Commission and what I'm calling Minkgate. In any case, let's read a little bit here about Minkgate. And the Minkgate, uh, <laughs> the Minkgate Commission, officially named Commission of Inquiry into the Case of the Culling of Mink is a Danish investigative commission set up by the majority in the Fulkenting in 2020 to investigate the Mink case. What is the Mink case, you ask? Let us delve deeper. The 2020 Danish Mink call. Look at them. Look at those little minks. But what could have happened? What could have caused their calling? In 2020, the Danish Mink call was the government-mandated slaughter of all 3.5 million mink that were being raised on farms for their fur in Denmark. The call began, excuse me, on November 4th in 2020, after it was discovered that pandemic had spread to the mink and that they had a higher risk of disease spread than was feared. It later became clear that the orders had been given without legal authority. So in any case, that is the big deal here with Mingate. So all of these minks, all 13.5 million of them were slaughtered on the government's orders and essentially they were slaughtered with no legal justification. And this started the Mink Commission, which had to investigate what exactly was going down here, what happened. And essentially what happened was, here we go, the commission delivered its report in June 30th of 2020, which is one of the things that spurred this early calling of the election, which stated that the killing of all the Danish mink had no legal justification and that the prime minister and the Danish government, particularly the former minister of food, Morgens Jensen, had grossly misled the public. However, however... It was also stated that Fredrickson was not aware of the lack of legal basis when she announced the public calling. So in any case, that led to her calling an early election, which apparently, I guess, the Danish people were that upset about, about Minkgate, and they ended up electing her again anyway, to which she resigned. So a weird situation there in Denmark. I just thought it was going to share some of those random anecdotes, because if anybody loves a good random anecdote, it's yours truly. So just a little addendum here to the Danish election. I found a couple funny things I wanted to share. First off, this actually ended up being an election where Greenland was the deciding seat as to who would get the majority. The first time Greenland has really been a kingmaker in Danish politics. 
The next little anecdote I want to share with you is that I forgot to mention this during the Mink Commission talk, the Mink Gate talk. That is that during the culling, the Danish government had some of these minks just buried. And this turned out to be a real issue because what happened is that as the minks started to decompose, they were creating air pockets underneath them, which was leading them to rise from the grave and resurface like Mr. Bunny here and terrify all the children. And honestly, I find this kind of disturbingly funny, just the idea of little Johnny or, I guess, Jonas Johansson. He's just frolicking through the field or whatever, and then all of a sudden, oh god there's a big there oh god there's another one jesus man eventually they ended up having to unbury all the minks that were buried and having to incinerate them because they were exploding up out of the ground which was not the best situation all right buckaroos now we're off to the big one off to the united states capitol here to check in with the midterm elections Gonna give you my last minute predictions and updates about what's going on. But before I dive in here, I actually wanna address something that a lot of people have been asking me, which is why I support the Democratic Party, particularly as a guy who was a Bernie supporter. I've always had it in for the Democratic Party for the rusty shiv that they left in his back. That being said, after a long period of bitterness and turmoil and hatred against the Democratic Party, I have come to terms with what they are. That while a democratic politician has no value, they do hold a space. And that space prevents some crazy socially conservative Republican from getting in there and enacting his extremely harmful reactionary agenda. And there's no question, the Republican Party just sucks. I will give credit to, for example, our conservative party here in Canada or the Tories in Great Britain. They are not like the Republican Party. The Republican Party is like a 10 out of 10 on the conservative scale, whereas those parties are more like a 4 out of 10. All right, so let's just go back to our baseline here. Last time we checked 538 about a month ago, things have flipped, essentially. We had a one point or so advantage for the Democrats. Now we have a one point or so advantage for the Republicans. This is definitely not a position the Democrats want to be in going towards the midterms, especially with... Republicans gaining momentum. Usually when it comes to my political predictions, I have a very momentum-based outlook that a lot of the times I will bet on the party that seems to have momentum going into the election, even if the polls aren't favoring that party to come out on top. And it definitely seems like the Republicans have the momentum right now. However, if we go and look at some of these polls coming out before, oops, it's just skim that over yeah god damn you i don't know why i'm talking about southern accent or talk about american politics got talking about southern accent that's okay in any case so you can see that some of these polls which have come out pretty recently are definitely favoring democrats more we have democrat plus seven democrat plus six however going back we've got some pretty bad ones here republicans plus four that's just before the end of november and as you can see we've there have been a lot of republican leaning polls in the last little while here moving into some of these numbers a little bit more deeply here essentially it's a dead heat for the senate this has come down from democrats favored to win the senate now it's about a coin toss I do suspect that the Democrats will probably eke out the Senate, 
just barely, but I do suspect they will eke it out. And when it comes to the House, it, there's no question that the Republicans are, I think, going to win the House. It's an easy, easy prediction. Generally speaking, when it comes to midterms, the off party usually does better anyway. I thought that the decision on Roe v. Wade would blunt that, and I do think it is going to blunt it in the sense that we're not going to have a red tsunami. I do think it's still going to be pretty close in the House, although the Republicans will gain the majority. And while Roe v. Wade has definitely been an effective political club that the Democrats have used against the Republicans, fortunately, it seems to be the only club that they have decided to use in a time when people do have other concerns that they have on their radar. Moving over to real clear politics, they have an even greater gap for the Republicans right now at plus three. I think the reason why the Democratic Party, there's a few reasons why actually the Democratic Party relies on the abortion argument so heavily. It has definitely been a shift in the way a lot of people view politics. It's a issue that they have the majority of support on, but I think most importantly for them is that it's an issue that kind of economically concerned lefties and the socially concerned lefties together on a, gets us all together on one page. And that's not an easy thing to do with any left-leaning coalition, particularly a very broad one like the Democratic coalition. So because it is such effective red meat for the base and an effective tool for uniting left-wing people together, they rely on it heavily. But like I said, you can only rely on it so much before it starts to get a little bit tired. However, there is definitely another thing affecting these numbers, and that is something that always will affect the party in charge, regardless of whatever country they live in, pretty much. And that is the price of oil. So let's over let's move over here to the price of oil. This is something that I check on a routine basis living here in Alberta. The price of oil dictates basically how well things go in this province. So right now we're just below $90 a barrel. That is particularly high. As you can see, by the way, this is the West Texas crude. This is usually the one standard that most people use. In any case, West Texas crude just under $90 a barrel. That's pretty high. As, as you can see, we had like a substantial dip here, which definitely affected things as I will show you very, very shortly. But as you can see, things are trending up. I thought they would actually be trending up more than this because Saudi Arabia essentially announced a recent production cut. And that is certainly going to drive up the price of oil. That being said, $90 a barrel is high. Let's move over to the one year mark here. As you can see, it's essentially right. This is the start of the invasion in Ukraine. Price of oil has sparked considerably back in around this time. Last year, we were sitting at, it was actually relatively high, but back in December, we're sitting around $70, $65 per barrel, which is medium priced. <laughs> I would say $65 a barrel is medium priced. In any case, the price of oil is increasing. And let me just jump here and show you something that one of our Discord members shared, which very accurately reflects the mood of the American people and their voting prospects. Anyway, jumping over to the Discord really quick, big shout out to Slide Dessert Fox for posting this little graph here which essentially shows that 
as the oil prices have gone down, Democratic poll numbers have gone up. However, this is from about a week ago. So in that time, oil prices have gone back up again, which would indicate that Democratic polling numbers are going back down. Yeah, the price of oil, a key metric in determining a lot of different things in the world, including the political prospects of the president of the United States. So let's kind of wrap this up by going over to some Senate polls and see how things are going in the United States Senate and see how things might potentially shake out there. Here we go. We are now at 270 to win. The main thing here is we're going to go. They, they haven't really changed most of these since we last looked at them. Georgia's still a toss-up. Nevada, still a toss-up. We do have Pennsylvania, I believe, Yes, yeah, still leaning Democrat. However, let's crack open some of these polls here. Most recent 2020 Senate polls. Going over here, the big thing here, I, I saw this one popped up right away. That's John Fetterman plus three. This is one most people have been watching very closely. Pennsylvania becoming more of a swing state. And currently, the Democrats are hoping to flip this to blue. Fetterman and Oz recently had their one and only debate, which... A lot of people say it didn't go very well for Fetterman. Obviously, he was struggling because he recently had a stroke. Apparently, this seems to have actually helped him before that. We can see, right? okay, this is the same day of the second. But anyway, Oz was starting to actually lead in this race. But oddly enough, it seems like this debate that everyone was saying that Fetterman, this is it, this is, he's done. It's actually not looking like that's going to be the case. So... I still think he's probably going to win that seat ultimately, but one of the absolute key races here in 2022 and seeing who's going to win that is going to be on everybody's radar. Looking through these, there's not a whole lot here that's really striking out to me. I was hoping we could find a poll in Georgia. Ah, here we go. One poll out of Georgia, Warnock plus one. Again, not exactly the position you want to be in. If Herschel Walker had to just win this, I will be very sad for the American people because he's just objectively an atrocious candidate who shouldn't be elected into office. But we will see. We will see on the 8th. Huh. Yeah, so unfortunately not feeling as optimistic as I was a month ago. That being said, I don't think that this is going to be a blowout by any stretch of the imagination. My final prediction is that it's going to be pretty close. And uh, we shall see on the 8th. I shall be seeing with all you guys collectively together. Should be a great time. So with that, that brings me to the end of all my election talk. I'm going to wrap this up with our feel-good story of the week because we didn't do one last week. And then we'll sign off. All right, so let's wrap up the show by talking about our feel-good story of today. And today I want to talk about agriculture because I think agriculture is a fascinating space. It's obviously extremely important how we grow our food is maybe one of, if not the most important question to humanity. The developments in agriculture are really low-key amazing and will hopefully change the way that we grow and consume food in the future. So this little robot here, well, not little, it's definitely a lot bigger than little. So this, this robot here, of course, I'll leave the description for you guys if you want to go check out the full video and get some more information. But this robot here will essentially drive over a section of crops and using basically data algorithms, they'll shoot little lasers out 
at pests that they detect while they're driving over the crops and essentially they'll zap them, kill them. And according to the company's own statistics, so yes, this is their own statistics, that is, this robot is capable of reducing the use of pesticides by approximately 90%, which is a huge boon for the farmers themselves and, of course, all of us, considering that pesticides are not great for you. Pests are evolving and it's getting more and more expensive to produce pesticides, which will kill them all. And it's not exactly the best thing for the environment to pump all of these chemicals out into farm fields. It creates runoff, which has other degrading environmental effects. However, with this technology here, essentially here we always see that they're spraying pesticides as this old way. But essentially what they're doing here is just going over the field and zapping the bugs, zapping the weeds with a little laser. And it's really quite amazing. We talked a lot about Brazil today. And as I mentioned before, Brazil is a very powerful agricultural country. The, their single largest product, which they export is soybeans. It's not the most valuable product, but it's the, in terms of volume, it is their largest. And one of the things that Brazil desperately needs to keep its farming operations running smoothly is pesticides. Because living here, up here in Edmonton, Alberta, not always the warmest place. In fact, it gets pretty cold here. But one of the silver linings of living in such a cold place is that the winter will kill any bugs that dare linger on. But in any case, the winter kills all the bugs. Not so much in Brazil, where the winter isn't exactly as much of a thing as it is here. So bugs can grow and thrive and get gigantic and scary. And another thing, and obviously all of these pesticides, I'm not sure if I should double check, but I think Brazil actually might be the world's number one importer of pesticides. And obviously this is not great for their economy. And like I said before, not exactly the best environmental effects. So hopefully stuff like this, we can get into the hands of people, not just in the United States, but obviously in places like Brazil and do a much better job in terms of making their agricultural sector a little bit more friendly and sustainable. Any case, that's pretty much the end of this segment. We're gonna have a lot more in terms of agricultural technology. It's a sector that I follow pretty closely. Like, cause I said, it's extremely important to our continued survival. So seeing what comes out of agriculture is always fascinating for yours truly. And this will actually bring us to the end of our show. I did want to unveil the final conservative argument, the final generic conservative argument in this episode, but unfortunately I didn't have the time to go the depths that I would like. So that is going to be the next episode. We will unveil that final argument. We'll have all six and maybe go through some examples. Basically, I'm hoping it'll be a guide to argumentation with conservatives. In any case, that's all I've got for you this week. So until next time, this has been the Comrade. Signing off for now, and you guys take care.